Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Lance, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm interviewing Mitchell Wilson about his book, The Analyst's Desire, The Ethical Foundation of Clinical Practice, published by Bloomsbury in 2020. And I think this is a book that will appeal to clinicians. It has a lot to teach us theoretically, but I think in ways that are very applicable to those of us who are practicing as psychoanalytically informed therapists. Mitchell Wilson is a training and supervising analyst at the San Francisco Center for Psychoanalysis, While in medical school at the University of California, San Francisco, he obtained a postgraduate degree in English literature at the University of California, Berkeley, where he studied the early English novel and Lacanian theory. He has been a a Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholar and has served on the editorial boards of the Psychoanalytic Quarterly and the Journal of the American Psychoanalytic Association. Currently, currently he is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of the American Psychoanalytic Association. He teaches, supervises, and operates a private practice as a psychoanalyst in Berkeley, California. So welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Philip. I'm uh, glad to be here and look forward to our conversation. Good. So let's see, let's just jump in and tell us why you wrote this book. Yeah, well, of course, um, it's impossible for me to say why I wrote the book. Um, I can, uh, you know, give a few um, sort of signposts about uh, what motivated me. I've been writing for many, many years, uh, and all psychoanalytic writing, uh, in my opinion, is autobiography. Uh, It's a form of auto theory, uh, you know, a loose genre of sorts that, uh, lately has um, come under uh, sort of uh, the object of study uh, in the humanities, but I think psychoanalysis uh, has benefited from writers who uh, who write clinically and theoretically. And there's always something very local about 
uh, analysts who write. You know, they uh, are immersed in the work, both clinical and teaching and, you know, being taught. So for me, uh, my autobiography uh, started uh, in medical school, even before that at UC Berkeley as an undergrad, and then uh, going back for this English degree, which was a total mind blower uh, in ways I could never have anticipated. That's where I got exposed to Lacan. And I've been working through what I would call the problematics of desire since uh, that uh, time in Berkeley in the early 80s, uh, studying Lacanian theory and the English novel and narrative and, and things like that. I also, uh, I've been writing, you know, for a long time, and the book is a mix of some old writing and some new writing. Uh, several chapters are entirely new. They've never been published before, and and the rest are substantially rewritten from their original, you know, published form. And regarding my interest in this topic of desire and uh, ethics, is really a clinical one primarily. I'm interested in practical things and uh, in my uh, experience as a candidate and a young analyst in San Francisco, uh, I was concerned by certain trends in clinical theory uh, that were happening in San Francisco at the time. I thought that they were wrongheaded and often traumatic to patients. Um, and yet they held sway. I have in mind mostly ego psychology and then uh, the neoclinian uh, wave that uh, swept through the Bay Area in the late 90s. So there are a variety of things that motivated me to put the book together. Yeah, and I'm so eager to talk to you about some of these wrong-headed ideas. I'm, I find it very fascinating, comparative psychoanalysis. And I, I was trained in, I guess you'd call it a Neo-Kleinian Institute. So, um, but I, I'm very um, f- fond of this book. And, and I want to talk a little bit here about Lacan, because I'm hoping some of our listeners don't just tune out too quickly because they heard Lacan and they, they think, oh, well, I don't understand Lacan or I don't know Lacan. So this is not going to be for me because I think your book does a great service to the the psychoanalytic community and the way it makes, um, tell me if I'm right or wrong here, but I think um, an integration or um, maybe even a hybrid sort of Lacanian approach to clinical practice um, integrated with some of the more traditional uh, forms. And I, I think you do it in a way that's understandable and um, very, very helpful. Does, is that an accurate description, sort of calling it a hybrid or an integration? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, first of all, for, you know, seeing some of the value in, in the, the book. Um, yeah, I'm a comparative analyst, I would say. Uh, I don't know about integration so much, um, but I think all really good analysts not that I'm saying I'm a really good analyst, but I think all really good analysts are their own sort of sui generis amalgam, you know, they, and, and um, I think Lacan, my exposure to him was um, so mind blowing in a disorienting way. I, I don't mean in an idealizing way. I mean, in a challenging way. And, um, and that's really what analysis is about. It reminds me of my, my first analyst when I was 
just uh, starting with him back uh, when I was actually back in graduate school at Berkeley. So I was very young. I was 23, 24. And we were negotiating the fee. And he said, uh, and I I said to him as we were negotiating the fee, well, why don't I just owe you money? We'll just keep track. You know, we'll set a fee and I can't pay you very much right now, but I'll make it up later. And he said, you know, psychoanalysis is hard enough work as it is without your owing me any money. And there was something about reading Lacan that was very, very difficult. And I'm the kind of person who, uh, if I uh, have a sense that there's something there that's worthwhile to go after, I will. And and I do think that that was true with Lacan. Um, now, he is difficult, but in some ways, extremely simple. And uh, And I'll say two other things about about Lacan for the listeners who might be, you know, very wary of, of delving in. He was uh, an excellent uh, sort of diagnostician regarding psychoanalytic trends and their problems with them. For example, uh, this was early on. This was like in the early 50s. He was already critical of uh, these pictures of the uh, an- descriptions of the analyst as a mother and as maternal. He thought that was highly problematic. He thought that the emphasis on affect uh, to the uh, detriment of the speech relation, which I know we'll get to soon, was also a sort of very anti-Freudian and also kind of indulgent in a kind of sentimentality. So I like the rigor of Lacan uh, and the lack of sentimentality the hard-edged sort of uh, purpose there. Um, But he was not very helpful clinically in terms of technique. I think there's a super rigid kind of um, hardcoreness about uh, the Lacanian position regarding technique. And we can talk about some of the limitations. Um, And then, yeah, you're right about... Lacan, uh, me, me bridging Lacan with some Winnicott, especially, and uh, and even ego psychology to a certain extent regarding conflict uh, and limit and and desire, which we will I know talk about in a second. So I would encourage people who are afraid of Lacan to at least read my book because it's it is pretty digestible and pretty straightforward. Okay, so let's um, talk about the analyst's desire, because we got that word desire there. And um, I remember I used to sort of be, before I started getting interested in Lacan, I was sort of turned off by that word. And I I came across a paper recently by Edgar Levinson, where he said, um, what did he say here? Quote, desire is a totally un-American concept. It's one of those words like discourse or subtext one tends to hear used only in postmodernist criticism, feminist writings, or some European psychoanalytic derivatives. So, so what? Tell us about this word desire and why it's in the title of your book. Right. So, uh, first of all, I, Ed, Ed Levinson is one of the giants of psychoanalysis, not just relational or intersubjective psychoanalysis. He's um, one of the trailblazers, really. Now, this particular quote, however, is pretty limiting, I would say, and not very helpful. Um, So I'm going to back up just a little bit. Regarding um, my 
uh, concerns and ongoing critique of certain positions in ego psychology and in the neo-Kleinian point of view, there's, uh, there's a problem with a basic assumption that these positions have. And it relates to desire and the lack of desire as a um, category of uh, inquiry uh, within, uh, as, as, as Levinson says, not only within American psychoanalysis, but certainly within Kleinian psychoanalysis as well. And, and the bias or the, the mistake is what Jacques Derrida called the metaphysics of presence. It's the assumption that the analyst is a positive presence to the patient and that human beings are positive presences to each other rather than, now, of course, we're physically present, right? I mean, this, you know, I don't want to be naive uh, about it, but uh, rather than this, um, this assumption of positive presence, what Lacan uh, following Heidegger and, um, and Hegel um, uh, emphasized is that the analyst, because the analyst is a person, all human beings are lacking at the level of being. We're lacking at the level of being because according to Freud, and this is what Lacan picked up on, the primary object, namely the maternal object, is lost or is gone um, and is uh, sort of simultaneous with the negation or the separation of the, the growing human being from the mother is uh, the mediation of language and the paternal function, the third um, thought, uh, you know, representation, symbolization. So all of those things that we cherish so much in analysis, the capacity to represent, to speak, to mediate absence, um, is because um, fundamentally the human being comes into culture and comes into subjectivity uh, because uh, there's an intercession of a certain kind of limiter law, and the child then becomes a speaking, creative being. And the exemplary story, of course, in Freud is the Fort Doss story that he wrote about in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, uh, where his grandson uh, it mediates his mother's absence. His, this is his two-year-old grandson plays with a toy train and makes it disappear and come back as a way to represent uh, the mother's absence. You know, she's left the room and speaks these phonemes, fort and da, gone and there. Uh, and that that's the exemplary moment uh, in psychoanalysis, in my opinion. And it's one that I refer to several times um, in various ways in my book as a sort of founding moment where lack and desire are coextensive. They're they're uh, mutually constitutive, as people say. So the reason why this is so important is because you and I, for example, would not be talking right now if we were full positive presences to each other. There'd be no reason to. But instead, you're curious about uh, what I have to say, and I'm curious about what you have to say, and uh, you have the, you know, this, this um, avocation to uh, do the do the podcast. And, you know, it's all about this basic desiring stance that we all live with all the time that goes far beyond 
uh, Freud's notion of wish. You know, sort of a wish is a congealed desire. A wish has a specific object and aim, can be described. And desire is a much more basic um, sort of er motivation that uh, all human beings who speak and can think and represent have. So Lacan emphasized that. And it's an enormously helpful basic idea uh, for the analyst uh, because we have desires that are often cloaked um, in various conventions, you know, therapeutic technique and theories, uh, but our desires are sort of shrouded and normalized uh, by, um, by those theories. Uh, but of course, a lot of my book is to try to unearth those various desires that get congealed into specific wishes because when the analyst is not aware that they're imposing things on the patient that they want to have happen, namely that they have wishes that they're imposing and they have conditions of satisfaction that they're imposing. When the analyst is not hip to that and instead thinks that um, you know they're just sort of going about things in the, a proper way uh, based on what a supervisor or their community or their analyst uh, might do, or they think they might do, then trouble is lurking. And my book is very much about those moments of um, unrecognized, unacknowledged desire on the yeah. part of the analyst. So some people may be thinking now about the famous beyond, you know, you should have no memory or desire, and we're going to, we're going to get there. So, but, but not yet, because I want to come back to the lost object, which sounds like we're in the world of of object relations, but as I understand it, in Lacanian theory, the lost object is the object that one never had. So it's not the breast that one had and then lost, as in maybe more Kleinian theory. It's one never had the breast. There's something about being a speaking being that brings us into, um, we're born into a lack. Uh, so it's a different kind of lost object. That- yeah, here we get here we get into some complexity where, or mystification, some might say, those who are skeptical of Lacan, you know, mm-hmm. um, and also a domain or a territory that others, within broadly speaking the Lacanian orbit, have filled in. So, what I mean is this, and you're very right to talk about. Um, the lost object in Lacan is the forbidden maternal object that never was in a certain way, because once the child be, you know, emerges into this other moment. And for Lacan, these are structural moments. There's sort of the pre linguistic moment. And then there's the coming into being as a speaking subject moment. These are structural. These are sort of logical constructions, they're not, um, he's not asserting, uh, you know, sort of basic developmental stages exactly, you know? Um, and so once the, let's say Freud's grandchild becomes, you know, starts to speak the absence of the mother, Fort and Da, the mother, um, the mother sort of never was, you know, um, as you were saying now, other Lacanians are those in that tradition, like Julia Kristeva. They really try to fill in the gap. You know, well, there, there must be, she calls it the, the semiotic cora, this sort of pre-symbolic domain. And she really tries to give life, both, especially to the mother, but also to the child, um, 
prior to that, you know, that structural shift from uh, no language to language. And then, uh, so for Lacan, um, and I'm, I, I don't fully buy this, by the way, but the hardcore Lacanian is going to say, well, yeah, the, the lost maternal object is just a shimmer, a phantom, and becomes in, not instantiated, because that sounds too reified, but becomes um, maybe displaced into different um, object causes of desire. He calls them the objet a, the small a, the little a. So the voice and uh, the gaze and the anal uh, and oral and genital zones are all causes of desire. They sort of evoke the lost object of the mother, which never was. You know, so again, we're we're into a certain level of uh, complexity or mystification that uh, might turn some people off to. Uh, Lacan. But okay, so maybe let's keep it real simple that desire in Lacan has to do, it is born from a, a lacking, a sense of something gone missing. Fundamentally, fundam- it's an ontological fact, right? Uh-huh. That yeah. It's like it's, it's grounded in our very human being after a certain point. Now, if you're psychotic, according to the Lacanian view, then that lack never got uh, sort of put in place and desire and symbolization and the capacity to represent never got formed. You know, he, another way to put it is the, the law of the father or the paternal function, you know, the, the, the analytic third never got instantiated. So um, that's his definition of psychosis. Yeah. And I have to say, that's where I finally started becoming very interested in Lacan. When I had a patient, I could never really accurately conceptualize a diagnosis. And then I read Darian Leader's book, What is Madness?, um, which is a Lacanian perspective on psychosis. And suddenly I understood this patient like I had never had before. And it was purely Lacanian. But so sticking with desire is lack. In, in Freud, I think when we think of desire, we think of libido, sexuality. It, that's the affirmative presence, maybe more of the, the sense that's driving this, the person um, towards objects. But that's a very different idea than desire is, is lack. Well, um, see, it's not desire as lack. So where I would, um, and, and in one of the chapters in my book, chapter five, um, nothing could be further from the truth, lack in the analytic process. Um, the, the point is that whatever, and this is related directly, by the way, to the, this whole problem with presence and the analyst is a positive object. Um, because if the analyst believes that he or she let's say is a nourishing breast, right? And that uh, interpretations are, a, 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 you know, quote unquote, a good feed for the patient. Then if the patient uh, differs with the analyst or disagrees or ignores what the analyst says or corrects the analyst, then the analyst is in a position of mastery, you know, which th- this is one of Lacan's uh, strengths. Uh, he he was uh, an excellent critiquer of various discourses of mastery, and the analyst should not be in a position of mastery. He certainly should not be um, 
proprietary about what they say, you know, like as if they own the meaning of what they meant, right? Um, so instead, of course, the analyst, as as we all, uh, this is true for all of us, you know, when when I'm saying something to you, I'm never covering the waterfront. I can't. There's always a lack within any symbolic offering, whether it's a thought or a statement or whatever. So the analyst has to recognize that fact that whatever they're offering is, as, as Edward Glover would say, you know, um, an inexact interpretation because there's no such thing as an exact interpretation. And, and that's where lack is, it's a structural thing. And so the analyst clinically, if the analyst is aware that, you know, they can, that they're free to speak precisely because um, they can never speak completely. And if they're aware of that, you know, structural fact, then the patient um, from the analyst's point of view and position can generously take up their own place. The, the patient has freedom to disagree, has freedom to challenge, right? Rather than the analyst uh, being suspicious of the patient's disagreements, which I think certain uh, analytic traditions sort of uh, encourage a kind of suspiciousness of motive, mm-hmm. you know, what's hidden behind what the patient is saying. From the Lacanian point of view, there is th- that suspicion uh, or suspiciousness really has no place in analysis. There's a kind of trust that uh, the patient's unconscious will speak, something other will speak um, that will be felicitous, that will be generative. Uh, because lack fundamentally is just like Freud's grandson again. I love, you know, I, I go back to that as the exemplary moment. Because it, um, sort of in the spirit of Winnicott, um, shows the beginnings of creativity and culture that um, that are born of or come from or evoked by or necessitated by uh, the very lack that the child's struggling with, right? So I, analysis is the same way. Okay. Since you've mentioned that, that grandchild, the Fort Da, so... The, the child is coming into language, he's speaking, he's saying, I forget which is fort is here and da is gone. So, so the, the child's trying to deal with the, or the other way around, but the, 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 there's, there's, there's some creative moment happening through language too. That's right. And that's what our, our patients are doing in session with us. Would, right. So this leads to the speech relation, right? And, mm-hmm. and another one of my, you know, what I spent some time on, especially in one of the early chapters, the analyst uh, is an innkeeper. And in that chapter, I, um, I sort of picture the analyst as a host, you know, uh, the patient uh, travels to visit the analyst and it's a risky business to come to visit somebody that you want help from. And the analyst uh, asks the visitor, the patient, you know, what brings you here? And so right away, we're in uh, sort of a conversational, dialogic uh, interaction with our visitor, the patient. Um, and in again, in, in some traditions, uh, including in, in my chapter on Beyond, I talk about this, uh, in some traditions, there's a, a real skepticism about the value of listening to what the patient is actually saying or can't say. 
uh, and a a kind of simple-minded conflation of um, speech in analysis with semantic content. You know, just what the obvious meaning. Uh, of the of the patient's words uh, are conventionally speaking, rather than uh, a much more robust view of of the speech relation and analysis uh, that has to do with tone and prosody and pace, uh, and uh, all of those things are part of the speech act. You know, the actual act of speaking. Uh, so the whole reduction of the speech act to semantic content seems to me to be. Um, uh, really unfortunate, an unfortunate sort of bias that some analysts have, um, which also leads to not only not listening to the patient, not listening for the various repetitions and contradictions and uh, nuances and hesitations and soundings, um, but also if you're going to minimize speech, then you end up privileging your own uh, internal uh, mental productions as an analyst. You know, this is partly why we get such an emphasis on countertransference because the patient is sort of excluded, in my opinion, in a certain way. You know, when the patient comes to visit the analyst and we say, what brings you here? And, and that actually, you know, that structural, basic structural interactional sort of setup, it happens every single day that the patient does visit because there is an implicit tell me what brings you here today that's happening all the time if the analyst is minimizing that engagement around speech then there's sort of a radical denial in my opinion of the patient's subjectivity and a privileging of the analyst's own mental productions which seems uh, backwards, right? And and I have a you know a, a fairly substantial critique uh, in one chapter specifically on desire and responsibility regarding countertransference, uh, what I call the ethics of countertransference experience, where uh, you know where uh, I I really go to town about this privileging of the analyst's internal preoccupations as if they tell us more or less directly what's going on in the patient. There's okay. huge problems with that. Uh-huh. Well, I think here we're, we're at a real critical point that differentiates um, Lacanian psychoanalysis from other forms. And it's at this moment when two people in a room are speaking to each other, how, how we hear the speech and whether we hear it, I think you call it in ego-to-ego relations, or if we hear it from this other vertex, to use a Bionian word, of the the third, we move from two people speaking to hearing through the position of a third, which is language, which pre-exists both of those two people in the room. So can you talk a little more to help listeners understand this critical move that Lacan makes that's that so helpful to learn whether or not you ever become a Lacanian. It's so helpful to understand this point because I think it can be very useful. Yeah. And I should say, you know, we, um, by implication, you're saying I'm a Lacanian and I would just, although you at the beginning 
more talked about me as is integrating various perspectives. And I certainly am not a Lacanian. I'm I'm just heavily influenced, uh, but also see some of the limitations. And we, we can talk about that perhaps a little bit later. But the distinction here would be, um, and we haven't quite gotten to this yet, but I'll just I'll get us uh, to this uh, question of the imaginary register and this ego to ego relating where and this is related to my critique of countertransference, you know, and if the analyst uh, is denying their own desire in relation to a patient, I have lots of case examples of this, both other people and myself where the analyst is imposing stuff on the patient and the patient is quote unquote resisting, but the analyst isn't aware or is in denial or doesn't have a theory of their own desire such that they, they could actually see that they're imposing stuff on the patient. Then we get into a mirroring relation, um, what I call the dual relation resistance. You know, Lacan calls it sort of this ego to ego relating. Um, that uh, is very difficult to get out of because all of the attributions then that the analyst has about the patient, you know, the patient is doing X, Y, or Z, also can be um, reversed and the patient can just as justifiably say, no, the analyst is doing X, Y, and Z to me. You know, the patient, the analyst can say, you're not taking in my interpretation. And the patient can say, well, you're not listening to me. You know, and the the only difference between those two parties in that situation is that the analyst has power and that exercise in power uh, can be extremely destructive uh, to the patient and to the analytic process. So um, and I think, you know, a strong theory of projective identification uh, in which, um, you know, the patient is thought to be putting things into the analyst. Uh, is often an excuse for the analyst to deny their own responsibility, which leads us to ethics too, their own responsibility for the impasse. Because, of course, the analyst is the innkeeper. The analyst is the host. The analyst is the analyst uh, and has an ethical responsibility to to take uh, note of the impact that they, the analyst, are having on the patient, which has to do with taking note of their desire. So how how the analyst and patient get out of an impasse, which I spend quite a bit of time on, uh, often has to do with, with the analyst doing what Heinrich Racker called um, a process of internal division. It's a kind of self-reflection. It's a taking account and giving an account, usually to oneself, but sometimes to the patient, of exactly what the analyst was wanting from the patient that they weren't getting. And when that happens, and in one of the early uh, cases um, that, I, that I report in my, in my book, when I take a, took account of my own uh, specific wishes that were causing trouble for the patient, then something else has a chance to happen. You know, then the dual relation resistance uh, tends to break up and yield to something else. And often then what will happen is the patient will have a dream like happened in that particular case. I think the case of Robert, or there'll be a slip or there'll be an enactment of some kind. But if the analyst is, you know, alert and, and open um, to the unfolding of what's happening, uh, 
then the analyst can say, oh, gee, so, you know, I, something just happened there. And that's something when the analyst says something just happened there, let's see what it is. Then the third is at play. Then you already have, um, you know, something outside of this, this dyadic dual snag. Um, so that does relate to, uh, you know, the third that you're talking about. The third can take a variety of forms, but it has a certain affective feeling of relative freedom um, that the analyst and patient uh, can breathe. There's air in the room. Thought can happen kind of in the Bionian sense. Uh, reverie perhaps can um, be a little freer. Um, and certainly uh, the interactional uh, dynamic can feel, will feel freer. And those are affective, atmospheric, sort of field condition signs that the third mm -hmm. is alive in the room. Yeah. And then we're in, then we're doing psychoanalysis I've, in, in my mind and, and what you're describing there. Um, but so, and the way you got there was um, the analyst um, asking her, herself, himself, what is my desire? That's what helps us escape from from falling into dual relations, ego to ego relations. So, so what is? But that's very different. It sounds like them from um, Beyond's famous aphorism: "No memory, no desire." But you're saying, "Look, what is you? Must, you need to know what your desire is." That's right. That's right. And let you know the the Beyondian without memory and desire is. I don't know. You know, like, well, you know, I, I think Lacan was guilty of this too. But you know, Bion was aphoristic. Um, he was telegraphic. Um, he was brilliant. Uh, he was also enigmatic. You know, um, and um, so this being without memory and desire. If if you read, and I encourage everybody to read the Los Angeles seminars when this is when Bion first went to LA in '67. And he clearly wants to get the hell out of London, you know, um, for uh, probably, you know, he felt uh, even even Wilford Beyond, you know, brilliant, independent. Um, but he, he I think he felt still in the clutches of the sort of the Kleinian uh, world there, you know, which can be very clutchy and very um, circle the wagons. You know, that's a whole other that that particular community would only read each other's papers. Right. Um, and there's a whole story to that. But anyway, Beyond gets the hell out of London and he comes to L.A. and he's not sure how his ideas are going to be received. Um, he's talking to some very young, brilliant people, Grotstein and Albert Mason and, you know, and more experienced people like Ralph Greenson. Um, and he says that, you know, beware of desire. But what he means is don't think about the end of the session. Don't think about what you're going to have for dinner, you know. So he basically just means be present in the room, you know. Um, and uh, and yet this um, this without memory and desire has become kind of a mindless shibboleth, you know, because of course it's impossible to be even even the desire, even the uh, you know you can desire not to be with memory or desire, but that's still a desire, which Lacan very astutely talks about in the four fundamental concepts uh, that desire not to have a desire is still a desire. So uh, it's unfortunate that Beyond's, um, you know, admonition has become like 
etched in stone because it really puts the analyst in a bad spot. Uh, if you really believe it to be true that you're without memory and desire, it's ridiculous, you know. And you mentioned Albert Mason and James Grotstein, two, um, let's see, late members of the Institute I was a part of here in Los Angeles. And the Los Angeles seminars, I think there's two other members of, of the Institute I belong to, Joe, Joe, Joseph Aguayo and um, Barnett Malin, who did a book about the Los Angeles seminars. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That's exactly, yeah. that's exactly the book. And is yeah. it mostly a transcript of what he said, but maybe exactly. there's some comment? I've never actually looked at that. Oh, it's fantastic because it's like one of those wonderful, you know, just these great historical moments that actually you can read. You know, you can imagine what it's like for Beyond to come to L.A. and to talk about alpha function and to have, uh, you know, Ralph Greenson wonder uh, and question him, you know, uh, and the engagement of all of it. Uh, and Beyond actually is fairly humble. In, you know, he's not sure he's making any sense. He'll say that. But what does come through in addition to this uh, sort of assertion about being without memory and desire is how um, relatively limited his Beyond's view of language was and interpretation. Because when he offers interpretations, examples of interpretations, they're declarative, direct, and propositional. I think you want to be rid of a bad part of yourself, and so you put it outside yourself, right? It's a very mechanistic language, it's, and it's completely antithetical to what a Lacanian would say, for example. A, a Lacanian would not attribute motivation uh, to a patient um, and, and, and speak in this kind of reified language. Uh, they'd be much more just interested in the patient's capacities to represent and to help them represent more without imposing a kind of psychologizing, you know, on the patient. So, you know, for all Beyond's brilliance, um, not unlike in a different way, Lacan, I think the, um, the clinical examples, you know, like of what to do is fairly constraining. I mean, Lacan's constraining in a different way. Uh, Lacan would, would usually not say anything. Right, so Beyond would would construct motivational statements because of X then Y, uh, and Lacan would be silent most of the time, and and cut sessions you know in half and stuff like that around supposedly pregnant moments, but often probably because he was bored, you know. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> I I'm um. I want to go to one of the ways you sort of, I, I found interesting how you, de, I guess I'd say you departed from more of a, a rigid sort of Lacanian technique when you said, let's see, I have a quote here, quote, um, but my point here is rather that in moments of more or less traumatic disruption, the object of analytic desire shifts from the speech relation to the patient as other person. Matricial space, is it matricial space is now in the foreground in need of attention. So what I understood by that is that a Lacanian's very carefully listening to the exact language, the signifiers the patient is using, but at sometimes when things become disturbed between the patient and the analyst, you need to shift to this other mode of being with the person. Well, that's that's what I, that's that's my thing. I mean, I, I have no idea what a Lacanian would do uh, regarding traumatic disruption, but. In this early chapter uh, on the analyst as innkeeper, I spend quite a bit of time talking about different aspects 
um, sort of the multi-dimensional possibilities regarding the speech relation. Um, but I also then uh, in the second half talk about how each of those different clinical examples that I gave could have gone south, you know, could have gone bad. Uh, the patient, for a variety of reasons, might have felt humiliated or upset or put off. And, and I give, you know, different ways in which that might have happened. Um, and then then offer a very extensive uh, clinical example about how um, I really, and this we often do this as analysts. I'm not sure what Lacanians do, but I know what I do. I certainly know what relational analysts do when there's a disruption. I mean, in addition to trying to take account of my desire uh, and what I'm imposing and the impact I'm having, um, I, I really feel uh, sort of in a, in a more caretaking mode, not an apologetic mode necessarily. Um, the whole notion of matricial space and our ethical responsibility for the other comes from Vivian Chatrit Vatin, who's an Israeli analyst. And her idea of the matricial is, goes beyond the maternal. It has to do with caretaking, as I said, the frame and the setting. Um, and her work um, uses a lot of Winnicott and Kristeva and Laplanche and Levinas, the uh, ethical philosopher Emmanuel Levinas. And what I really like about Chatrit Vatin is that um, she makes it clear that the speech relation, or however we conceptualize sort of the, the working engine of analysis, is always within this larger matricial context, this caretaking, innkeeper, host context, where disruptions um, really need to be attended to. And, and that's why I say uh, my object of analytic desire shifts when there is a traumatic disruption from the speech relation to the patient as other person. I especially want to attend to how they felt hurt. And th this has some cohesion sort of resonances, right? Uh, he would call it empathic failures. I think that's way too general, but it does capture something about uh, what a traumatic disruption is. So for me, there's always this figure ground of the speech relation within the matricial, within the setting, frame, hospitality, innkeeper um, relation or motif or mode. But then, um, you know, often there's something that happens that needs to be attended to uh, regarding sort of what I call the matricial, where the speech relation, speech gets repurposed, as I say in the book. Uh, we, we find other ways to use speech to attend to uh, what, what happened, you know, in action between, it's usually an enactment or something uh, between patient and analyst. We're nearing the end of our time available. So I have, I want to ask two more questions. Um, the last one is going to be, is there, what else do you want to tell us ab about the book or any of the chapters? But um, before I get there, the subtitle of your book, The Ethical Foundation of Clinical Practice. I think you've more or less been talking about that, but maybe to connect the dots, can you just say that again? Yeah. So um, Lacan's, the way the way Lacanian sort of knowledge has been disseminated for the most part has been through his seminars. And he gave, I don't know how many seminars he gave over a 25, 30 year period, but something like 25 seminars. Seminar seven was the ethics of psychoanalysis. 
1959-1960. It's an amazing document. It's uh, something that I go back to again and again. And one of the conclusions he reaches is, um, uh, you know, sort of the ethics of psychoanalysis involves the question, have, have you given ground relative to the desire you've now discovered you have? Have you given ground relative to your desire? What I take that to mean uh, is uh, not just that, you know, you should act on now whatever you've discovered. Of course, that would be ridiculous um, because usually um, the desire you've discovered is very complicated and has uh, tragic elements and, and sort of regret elements and also hopeful futural elements. Um, but related to the analyst, uh, to me, it relates to then, uh, has the analyst taken responsibility, ethical responsibility for their desire? Because if, if again, if the analyst doesn't have the category of desire as, you know, se- a sort of a central way of organizing how the analyst thinks about their activity, then they're not going to be uh, able to take responsibility for their actions and, and to judge their actions. Um, and uh, as Lacan says in the ethics, uh, he defines ethics as, as a judgment of our actions. So um, that's how I link ethics. It has to do with responsibility for desire uh, with the overall book. And speaking of the overall book, is there anything else you'd like to say about it or about writing yeah. it? Or? Well, I, I, I loved writing it. Um, the the final the final couple chapters um, are are totally new writing. Um, one critiques the the a reified unconscious. I call that chapter uh, the proleptic unconscious, which has to do has to do with the future. And then the final chapter is about uh, endings and analysis. Is it possible for analysis to end? And I, I love that chapter. It's a very moving chapter to me. It's uh, sort of beautiful in a certain way. Um, and it has a kind of different emotional cast. Well, it's about endings, right? So there's, there's a kind of, um, uh, there's a longing in that chapter that I particularly resonate with. Well, that's a good place to end uh, with a longing that I wish I could uh, convey to our listeners better what the richness of this book but i'm gonna have to um can desire for an, to talk to you more in the future about whatever you write next thank you, thank you philip i really appreciate it it was fun you're very welcome so you've been listening to an interview with mitchell wilson about his book the analyst desire the ethical foundation of clinical practice here at the new books in psychoanalysis channel podcast channel part of the New Books Network. Please contact me at uh, philipjlance at gmail.com to let me know your thoughts and questions about the show. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.